Bible prophecy is often misunderstood and misapplied, which leaves many people confused or fearful. But when the Bible is studied in its proper context, prophecy becomes clear and understandable. There is no one we can trust more than Jesus, and His words will speak specifically to us as we study them in their simplicity. Welcome to Jesus on Prophecy. So we are talking about Revelation, and Revelation uh, today uh, talks about an end-time deception, the final deception that we all need to be aware of. And so we're going to start with our question today, which says, who are the two women in Revelation? And what does a woman represent in Bible prophecy? And we see that in Revelation, uh, there's a mention of two women. And so we know that Revelation is a prophetic book shrouded in symbolism. And so there's a lot of symbols in Revelation that we need to understand in order to understand the messages of Revelation. But thankfully, the Bible helps us to decode these symbols so that we know exactly what they are and how to best understand them. So we see that the book of Revelation describes two systems of religion. It describes two ways of worship. The book of Revelation presents one of two choices. It doesn't leave us any middle ground, and it presents a strong appeal to men and women in the last days of Earth's history. It's an urgent call to commitment, and this appeal can be summarized in the symbolism of two women in Revelation. The first woman is mentioned in Revelation chapter 12, and we see that this woman is described in Revelation chapter 12, and uh, you could turn there, Revelation chapter 12, and we're looking at page 1182, I believe. And it shows this woman that's described. And let's have table number four again. <laughs> We're going out of order, but I'm used to this sequence, so we'll just go with uh, Scott's table. Scott or Yunju can read Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. Okay, thank you. So, the woman described in Revelation chapter 12, she is dressed in white. She has a garland of 12 stars. Uh, she has the moon under her feet, and she is clothed with the sun. And so we see that throughout the Bible, uh, a woman, a pure woman, symbolizes the bride of Christ, or the true church. How do we know this? We see that the symbol of a woman is found in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 2. And let's see what a woman symbolizes in Bible prophecy. Isaiah, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 6, verse 2. That's page 732. 732 is Isaiah 6. I'm sorry, Jeremiah 6, verse 2. 
And uh, table number two, we will have someone read that for us. What does a woman represent in Bible prophecy? Jeremiah 6, verse 2, page 732. Okay, does someone have it? Table two. All right, anybody? I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and woman. Okay, so we see that a woman in Bible prophecy, according to this text, is what? Is the Zion, or God's people, or God's church, is represented as this lovely, delicate woman. We see also Ephesians chapter 5, Christ likens his faithful church as his bride. And we see that the faithful bride of Christ is depicted in Revelation chapter 12. Here is a striking symbol of a woman dressed in white. She is faithful to her true lover, which is Jesus Christ. She is undefiled with the corruption of false doctrines. She is described as Christ's bride or his church on earth. And so we see, thus is depicted Christ's bride. But we see another woman in Revelation chapter 17. And another woman arises. And this woman, she rides upon a scarlet beast. And the Bible calls her a harlot. She has left her true lover, Jesus Christ. And this, my friends, is the apostate system of religion. And tonight we're going to take a special look at the harlot woman of Revelation chapter 17. And that will be our focus tonight. To see what we can learn about this woman and why we should be aware, beware of her and her teachings. We see as we study throughout night after night that our theme is so crucial. By the way, before we go any further, if you have phones, can you silence them please? because um, we want to not have any distractions during our time of study. So if you could just silence your cell phones, that would be very much appreciated. But uh, we see that our crucial theme, night after night, is if it's in the Bible, I believe it. If it disagrees with the Bible, it's not for me. And that is a great standard by which we should follow to allow the Bible and the Bible only to be our guide in following what the Bible brings forth as truth. So even if the whole world follows fables or human dogmas, we need to stand on God's Word and God's Word alone. Amen? And so we see, before we take a look at the apostolic church, which is depicted in Revelation chapter 12, I believe that that church is the apostolic church. The New Testament church is radiant with the Son of Righteousness, Jesus Christ. Christ is prominent, predominant in her life, and her affections are fixed upon Him. Her heart belongs to Jesus. Her love can be given to none other. And so the New Testament church in Revelation chapter 12 is pictured as this faithful bride of Christ. But we see that the picture changes when we get to Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. Another woman 
comes on the scene that is in stark contrast to this woman of Revelation 12. Who is the other woman in Revelation chapter 17? And notice the word other. Revelation chapter 17, verse 1 through 2, page 1185. And we're going to have the next table read that for us. And then it's going to be someone on Mary's table, Mary, Josephine, or Karen, if someone could read that for us. Okay, thank you very much for reading that. So here we see a woman depicted here. This woman is the harlot of Revelation 17, who has, she's a harlot because she has left her true lover. And here is a picture, not of the true church, but a fallen church, an apostate church. She has walked away from her true lover, Jesus, and the Bible says, furthermore, in verse 15, that she sits on something very interesting. What does she sit on? Revelation chapter 17, verse 15. Let's take a look there. And we're going to have table number 7 read Revelation 17, verse 15. What is this harlot sitting upon? Revelation 17, verse 15, page 1186. Okay, so the harlot, thank you, is sitting where? She's sitting on? Okay, no, on this text. <laughs> uh, the, the, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits. What is she sitting on? In this particular passage, yes, she's sitting on the beast in verse 1 uh, and 2 and 3. But in this passage, where is she sitting? on the waters, right? So we see that she is sitting on the waters. The waters represent what? It says it right there, doesn't it? Peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So in other words, friends, this religious system, this religious church, this harlot woman, this, is a, this apostate church is sitting on many waters. That means that she has the support of all the people. She has the support of all the multitudes on earth. She has the support of all the nations of earth. Are you following? So she is a very prominent, popular entity on the earth. Because all the world is supporting this entity. So the fallen church system, the harlot, who has left her lover, Jesus, she dominates many people. And the Bible goes on, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. So what is fornication? Well, fornication is an illicit union. And we see that how did this woman commit fornication? Well, obviously, she left her first, her true lover, Jesus Christ, and she's committing fornication with the kings of the earth. So in other words, she is forming an illicit union, 
Not, and, and it's not a union with Christ. It's a union with the kings of the earth. So what does this mean? It means that in the fallen church system, the church is united with the state. So in other words, we see a merging of both church and state, which this church system is involved with. And you contrast that with the true church system, the church which is united with Jesus Christ and the truth as it is in Christ. And so the fallen church looks to the kings and the political leaders of the earth for power. And this tells us something. When, I, when the church leaves its true lover, when it leaves Jesus, it has to look for power elsewhere. It has to look for power from a secular source. And we see that the Bible says, and the inhabitants of the earth are made drunk with the wine of her fornication. The fallen church, the harlot, dressed in purple and scarlet, sits upon a scarlet-colored beast, the fallen church gets her power from the state, but she also influences the state to support her falsehoods. Because it's very interesting. It shows that she is sitting on top of this beast. So what does that indicate? If someone is sitting on top of a beast, they have control. Exactly. They're controlling and telling that beast where to go. Right? So she is in charge of this political entity. She is the one that's calling the shots that this political entity must follow according to what she tells, this what tells the state to do. And she passes around the wine cup of false doctrine and the world becomes intoxicated with error. Millions drink of the wine of Babylon and are deceived. And the Bible describes it in this way. Revelation chapter 17, verse 3, it says, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. So the harlot woman of Revelation 17 represents a false system of religion. It represents a false system of religion in opposition to the true system. The beast on which she rides upon represents the state. Remember, in Bible prophecy, a beast represents what? You guys should know this by now. A, a king or a kingdom or a political power. Isn't that right? And so here she is, this, this woman, this corrupt church that's behind the power of the state. She derives the power from the state, but she also influences the state. And here is very clearly illustrated this illicit union. And there's a marvelous Bible commentary by a group of Protestant scholars which comments on Revelation 17 on page 593 of this commentary. The authors make this remarkable statement. They say, State and church are precious gifts of God, but the state being desecrated becomes beast-like. The church apostatizing becomes the harlot. And this is a Protestant commentator who is making this very clear observation as brought forth in Revelation. 
So number three, how is a harlot described? We go on to Revelation 17, verse 4. And if you could have uh, Ben, would you mind reading that for us, please? Revelation 17, verse 4, page 1185. Page 1185, Revelation 17, verse 4. Okay, thank you. So this woman, remember, is the harlot woman, right? The fallen church. She's arrayed in what colors? Purple and scarlet. She's adorned with what? Gold, precious stones, and pearls, right? So this is artificial adornment that this woman decks herself out with as opposed to contrast the the pure woman who's actually adorned with natural light and the light of the heavens that God has adorned her with. This woman, however, is adorned in her own adornment. And what are the colors that God uses to describe this false system of religion that appeals to the state? The colors are purple and scarlet. Which religious system do we know that their priests wear purple and scarlet? Well, scarlet is the color of cardinal's robes. And the pope often wears royal color of purple at important functions. And so that's very interesting detail there. We continue, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. In other words, in the hand of this fallen system of religion, whose colors are purple and scarlet, there is a wine cup, and all the world drinks and becomes confused, comes intoxicated by her false doctrines. And the golden wine cup in her hand represents the intoxication of false doctrine. Now we go further. What is the name on her forehead? And I believe that, Ben, you read that too, right? Verse 5. So um, we won't have to read that again. But we see that on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So notice, what do we notice about her? She is also a mother. Do you see that? Does the Bible make that clear? She has daughters. Other daughters that have come out of her but have retained some of her false doctrines. It's so plain in the Bible that God is calling people who've been part of the great mother church. And God is calling people that are part of the daughters of that mother church, the Protestant daughters. He's calling them from the errors that have slipped into the church from paganism. Last time we talked about that, how the early church was baptized paganism and how all these denominations came about from that early onset. And we saw how things branched out and splintered out. 
And so we see how everything was just uh, a, 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 what was a residual of baptized paganism that still is in existence in Protestantism today. And God is calling His people, those who are the, those, the, the daughters, these Protestant daughters, from the errors that have slipped into the church from paganism. And God is calling His people to the truth of His Word. And we see tonight, I believe that you want something more than just sweet, fluffy words that make you feel comfortable. Isn't that right? I, I know that that's why you're here. I've talked to some of you, and some of you have even told me, you know, my church never preaches about revelation. My church never preaches about prophecy. That's why I came to these meetings, and I'm learning so much. And I've heard those things, and when I hear that, I'm saying, praise God. Praise God that we're learning these things that we ought to know. And friends, I know that that's why you're here tonight. And praise God you're here tonight. I believe the longing in your heart is for the truth directly from God's Word. Am I right? And does your heart long for the truth of God's Word? Yes. Mine too. And you love the truth and you want the truth. And we should live by the truth. Amen? And so let's take a look at question number four. What does the Bible mean when it says mystery, Babylon the Great? Okay, well, let's take a look at literal Babylon. In the first century, literal Babylon was a city that existed in the Old Testament that had already perished. So this is not talking about literal Babylon. This is talking about spiritual Babylon. It is talking about a religious, a religious system that would depart from the pure teaching of God's Word. It's talking about a departure from Bible religion. It's talking about a departure from the faith of Scripture. And so we see that in spiritual Babylon, these false doctrines would come into the church through this false religious system called Babylon. Now notice... They would be sanctioned by the church. Their doctrines would be sanctioned by the church and not by God. And let's take a look at John 17, 17. I love this verse. It's a verse that we should take heed to because that's what we live for. John 17, 17, page 1046. And table number 9, if someone can read that for us, please. John 17, 17, page 1046. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So what sanctifies us? The truth of God's word. And that's very important. If we embrace the truth of God's word, guess what? The truth sanctifies us. It has a sanctifying influence in our lives. But if we shun truth, what will happen? You're not sanctified, exactly. You, you refuse that sanctification that the word, that the truth, that God brings to you will bring. So friends, I pray that when you see that the truth is very clear from the Bible tonight, that you do not shun that truth. Embrace that truth, because it's the truth of God's word. And when you embrace that truth, you are sanctified thereby. Amen? And what does the word sanctify mean, by the way? Sanctify means to set apart for a holy purpose, right? It's different from what is common. 
And God is saying, I am calling my people in these last days from false doctrines of Babylon, calling them out of false doctrines of Babylon, calling them out of the system to the truth of my word. And that is what God is seeking for, the people who will respond to the truth and to respond to Christ's calling. And we see in question number five, where did Babylon originate from and what does it represent? Well, we go all the way back to the book of Genesis, to the early onset of when Babylon had its origination. We see in the Old Testament right after the flood, there's a group of people who rebelled against God. They built a tower which became known as the Tower of Babel. But came down, God came down, and confused their language, according to Genesis chapter 11, verse 9. God came down, confused their languages, and all the languages of the earth came about as a result. So this is why we need Rosetta Stone today. <laughs> Right? This, is, uh, this is where it came from, all these different languages. And as they, but we see that the motive of these people, as they were building this, temp, this, this tower, they were building it as in a direct defiance against God, in direct rebellion against God. They did not accept God's word that the world would never again be destroyed by a flood, and they substituted what God's word said with a man-made idea. And every time man substitutes a counterfeit for God's word, it is because there's rebellion in the heart. Rebellion chooses, makes people not want to accept God's word as it is. And we see that when a church clearly preaches God's truth, the truth of God's word comes to light in all its brilliance and luminescence. It's not babbling. It's proclaiming. And there's a difference between proclaiming truth and babbling tradition. And the Bible says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, King, Babylon, uh, King, of, King of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar says, is, this, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling? by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. And so we see that spiritual Babylon represents a man-made religion established by man, based on man's teachings, established on man's ideas. There is a form of man-made religion that is being built by brilliant human religious leaders that stand in opposition to the power of the gospel and the church that Jesus built. Jesus, while on the earth, spoke this prophecy about his church for all of time. Let's take a look at Matthew 16, verse 18. Matthew 16, verse 18, page 940. What did Jesus speak of his church in prophecy found in Matthew 16, verse 18, page 940? And if we have table 10, read that for us, please. And I 
Okay, thank you. So we see that Jesus is saying, in contrast to Peter, Peter's name means Petros, which means a pebble, rolling stone. And Jesus is saying, upon this rock, Petra, which is referring to himself, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So God's church in the last days should be a bulwark, a fortress of truth. That nothing can topple that truth down. It will be an unstoppable force. We talked about that last night as well. How the early church was this formidable um, um, force to be reckoned with. That the devil could not take this church down. And it was proclaiming the truth. It conquered and it prevailed. And certainly the gates of hell could not prevail against it. And the true church in the last days will be characterized as such as well. The true church that upholds the truth and in all the truth and nothing but the truth will have the gates of hell powerless in its presence. And we see that there's two systems of religion that is at an issue in these last days. One man-made and one God-made. The church has a solid foundation, Jesus Christ. It is built on true doctrine and the gospel of Christ and so Babylon first is a man-made system of religion, false doctrines built upon the words of traditions and men. And Jesus is calling us all out from human systems of religion. He's calling everyone in these last days to come out of these human systems and to bring them into the truth as it is in Jesus. He's calling us back to the Bible. He's calling us back to loyalty. He's calling us back to faithfulness to His Word. The church of Jesus Christ is not a man-made institution. Question number six. Who is the head of the church? We see that the Bible tells us that the church of Christ was built by Jesus Himself. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, page 1132. And table 11. If we could have someone read that for us. Colossians 1, 18, Colossians 1.18, So the question is, who is the head of the church? Colossians 1.18, 1132. One eighteen. Mm -hmm. So we see 
based on this text, that Jesus is the head of the true church. Jesus is number one in the true church. Jesus has preeminence. Jesus is the only head of the church. In fact, somebody put it this way once when they said that the true church of God is the only organization so big that his body is upon the earth, but its head is in the heaven. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. And the head of the church is in heaven, not on earth. So what about the mystery of Babylon the Great? Where is her head? What about this woman that rides upon the scarlet-colored beast? Who is the head of Babylon? Well, let's take a look at earthly Babylon first. Who is the head of earthly Babylon? King Nebuchadnezzar, right? Earthly Babylon in the Old Testament had an earthly head that was preeminent. And the word of those Babylonian kings were law. When Nebuchadnezzar sat in his, in his throne, in his temple, he spoke as God. His commands were supposedly the voice of God. But once again, in the last days, a church state system will arise called spiritual Babylon, who would have a spiritual leader claiming to speak as God, and there be one whose word will be declared the very word of God. Spiritual Babylon would have a leader who claimed that he had the authority and power when speaking from his throne as the very God of heaven. The first identifying feature of spiritual Babylon is that it would have an earthly head who speaks for God and in place of God. So that's one identifying feature, a person, an earthly head who says that they are God or presumes to be God in place of God. The second thing about Babylon's uh, identification, what is another feature of Babylon, spiritual Babylon? We see Babylon, we know, was a center of image worship all throughout the Old Testament. We can never understand the impact of Revelation 17 in the words, Mystery, Babylon, the Great, unless we understand the Old Testament Babylon. Babylon was the center of image worship. Now Christ invites us to come directly to Him. We do not need to come through images. We do not need to come to him through priests or saints or some other earthly intercessor. He is our intercessor. He is our priest. The beautiful teaching of the New Testament is that grace is free. The beautiful teaching of the New Testament is that Jesus our, is our Savior and our Redeemer and he invites us to worship him and him alone. And the Bible says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 and 5, in God's moral law, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Jesus says to us, do not use images in your worship service. And Babylon used images prolifically in his worship service. 
and many of those images found their way back from paganism to Rome and even in the Christian church. These images are called sacred today. These images are the images that the church fathers and leaders called holy. But the Bible says that there's only one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ our Lord. There's no salvation in no other. Millions of Christians revere so-called images as objects of worship. And this is one of Satan's deceptions, to cloud their minds from the truth of God's word. Question number eight. What is a third identifying characteristic of Babylon? Well, we see number one, he would have what? Let's review. An earthly person at its head who claims to be God in place of God. Secondly, what did we learn? That it was the center of idol worship. And third, we see that Babylon is a center of false teachings about death. Did you know that? It was the center of the doctrine of the immortality of the soul. Now this idea that the dead live on, this idea that when you die, there's an immortal soul that continues eternally, did not come from Christianity. Now here is one of the most incredible texts in the Bible on all that. Turn with me to Ezekiel. Chapter 8, verse 13 and 14. Page 806. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 13 and 14. Page 806. This is a very revealing text in Ezekiel. 8, 13 and 14. Page 806. Table number 12 is up next. Eight oh six, Ezekiel 8, 13 and 14. Okay, so we see that Ezekiel is caught up in vision and he's being shown the abominations of Israel. And it says that as he was observing what this angel was revealing to Ezekiel in vision, Ezekiel noticed that at the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, the Lord's house is what? His temple. His place of worship. And what is transpiring there? It says, And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Now, who was Tammuz? Tammuz is the god of vegetation. The Babylonians believed that when winter darkened the sky and there were long nights, Tammuz died. But in the spring, there would be a resurrection. And some of God's people, the Jews, accept this false idea from Babylon straight out of paganism. That's why Ezekiel describes 
them as worshiping Tammuz. They're worshiping the dead. This false idea that the dead live on and the soul is immortal slipped into the Old Testament church directly from paganism. And they're observing this kind of worship in God's house of all places. This is not a separate temple for Tammuz. This was in God's house. And here's what the Bible has to say about the truth of death. We, we study this in our talk about the death, the state of the dead. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5. We've visited this, page 644, for your reference in the Bible. It says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know how much? Nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. The living know that they shall die, but the dead know absolutely nothing. This is what the Bible was teaching. And why did Satan, what did Satan say to Eve? What was the first lie that he, he promulgated in the garden? He said, you will not surely die. From the early onset, Satan was already promoting the immortality of the soul. That you will not die. You'll continue to live on, Eve. And he started it from the very first, our very first parents. He, start, he started with them. He said, Eve, you are immortal. The idea of the immortality of the soul, of worshiping the dead, of bowing before images, supposedly representing the dead, the idea that the immortality of the soul gave way to this pagan doctrine of bringing offerings to the dead. And this gave way to the Christian doctrine of saints that are supposedly hovering around, hovering about after they die. You see, the very idea of the immortality of the soul, my friends, takes away the power of the second coming of Jesus Christ because it eats at the very heart of the church. If you believe in the immortality of the soul you, and you believe that when you die, you immediately go to heaven, then why, tell me, would Jesus come to resurrect the dead if they're already in heaven? That doesn't make sense. There's definitely a disconnect there. The false, this false teaching undercuts the very truth about the second coming of Christ. It was God's intent that the, that the church in every age would long for the second coming. We talked about that last night, how each of these denominations actually contributed a piece of that truth. And one denomination, the Adventists, brought that truth of the second coming of Christ to light as of utmost importance that was long lost sight of. And according to the Bible, our loved ones rest in Jesus until the second coming of Christ. Together with them, we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So why is it today that many churches are spiritually dead? Why is it today that many churches lack spiritual power? It is because they have lost that sense of urgency of the second coming of Christ. It is because they have lost this burning passion for Jesus to come. They have just been settling for continuing on in this life as business as usual, not understanding that Jesus' coming is eminently near. And that is the reason why there's a spiritual slump in many churches today. I thank God 
that the Bible teaches truth. I thank God that the Bible leads us to have this sense that Jesus is coming and He is coming soon, my friends. And our hearts can beat with the eager anticipation that our dead loved ones who are sleeping, who are resting in their graves, will be resurrected to meet Christ in the, in the sky when He comes. Question number nine. There's a third characteristic of Babylon. What was the prominent focus of worship in Babylon? We see that Babylon was the center of sun worship. What kind of worship? Sun worship. All sun worship came through varying pagan channels. And we see, again, Ezekiel reveals more in uh, the visions that this angel shows him. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 16, page 806. And we'll go back to uh, table 4. Ezekiel 8, verse 16, page 806. Let's read what is t transpiring in this text. That's the wrong text. Okay, so it's chapter 7, verse 16. Thank you. No? Page 807. Okay, so the text is right. The page number is a little off. Okay. This is a fascinating bit of history which helps us to understand the origin of Sunday worship. The Jews accepted the Babylonian idea that the soul was immortal and they were praying to Tammuz, but they were doing something else in the inner court of the Lord's house. What was it? We see that in the inner court, uh, inner court of the Lord's house, at the door of the temple, between the porch and the altar, what was it? About 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord. Their backs are to the temple and their faces toward the east. They were worshiping the sun. Now they came to the Lord's house. They came to the Jewish temple. They came to worship God. But ironically, they are not worshiping God. Although they are present in God's house, they are worshiping and facing towards the sun. But this says that they turned around and faced the sun. They put their backs to God. They faced the sun that was rising toward the east. And they were worshiping the sun. So even then, the influence of Babylon was there for the Old Testament church. And sun worship crept into the church. And Babylonian religious practices united with Judaism. Then the worship of the sun came in. The Worship of Nature by James G. Fraser, volume 1, page 529, says this. In ancient Babylonia, the sun was worshipped from immemorial antiquity. The sun was worshipped. 
The sun was part of that worship system. It was very plain what happened in the early Christian church. Check out this excerpt from the book, The Two Babylons. It says, to consolidate the pagans to nominal Christianity, Rome, pursuing its usual policy, took measures to get the Christian and pagan festivals amalgamated. And to get paganism and Christianity, now far sunk in idolatry, in this as so many other things, to shake hands. So what did paganism and Christianity do? Eventually, first they were at odds with one another, but now they shook hands. Sunday became a vehicle to unite paganism and Christianity. Do you see what God is saying in Revelation chapter 17? He's saying that many false doctrines would come into the church. He's saying that the great mother church has drifted away from the truth of scripture. The one who can speak powerfully without mistake is Jesus himself who is telling us this. A church based on the idea of human merit for salvation. A church based on the idea of images in worship. A church based on the idea of the soul being immortal. A church based on the idea of Sunday worship is a part of a culture called Babylon. And here's something that we can really appreciate here. This is a quote from a Baptist minister. And so... If there's any Baptists in the room, this is a very relevant quote coming from a minister from this denomination. You know, this is what he emphatically says. And I, I, I'm glad that he is making it so clear. In the Baptist Manual, November 13, 1893, Dr. Edward T. Hiscox, ministry, in the ministry convention, he wrote this. And, and God bless him for saying this because this is probably not very popular among Baptists, but he is saying it. He's saying, what a pity that it, speaking of Sunday, comes branded with the mark of paganism and christened with the name of the sun god, then adopted and sanctioned by the papal apostasy and bequeathed as a sacred legacy to Protestantism. Wow. He is saying it straight up based on what he has studied from history, and history attests to this, and he's not denying it. And that's a statement by the author of the Baptist Manual. And he says that it's a pity that Sunday has come through the muddy waters of paganism, then into Catholicism, then we Protestants have wholeheartedly accepted it without question. Your friends, Ezekiel the prophet would say the same thing today. He would say, what a pity that we would turn to a different day, to a day that venerates the sun, the God of the Babylonians, when God gave us a sign of his creative power as the one true God, which is the Sabbath. 
Ezekiel will be saying the same thing today as he saw all those abominations taking place with God's people, his people. And Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12, the Bible cannot make it any clearer. People always say that this is only for the Old Testament peoples, only for the Jews, but friends, this, I believe, applies to everyone. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths. Why? What are the, what's the Sabbath? What's the purpose of the Sabbath? What's so special about the Sabbath? To be a sign between them and me. And some people will go as far to say, oh, that's talking about the Jews. No, friends. Because if, if it's only for the Jews, are you telling me that the rest of this verse says that only God sanctifies the Jews differently from everyone else? That doesn't make sense. He says, I gave them a Sabbath to be a sign between me and them that they might know I am the Lord who sanctifies them. You see, friends, if we embrace the Sabbath truth, if we embrace clearly that it is the truth from God's word, then we are embracing the very sign that we know that it's God who can make a 24-hour span of time holy and has been holy ever since from the onset of creation. That holiness never wore off. He never deactivated the holiness on the Sabbath day. That day is still remaining holy. And if we observe and embrace that sign, we are attesting to the fact that God can make us holy. Amen? Amen. And all of, all, also, when, when people say that the Sabbath is, is done away with, and it's like old you know, dispensation, I don't understand how they cannot explain Isaiah 66. Like, if they say the Sabbath has been done away, or the Sabbath has been changed, or the Sabbath was changed to Sunday, give me a verse that says that. Or tell me when the Sabbath is no longer part of the moral law. Because how will you attest to Isaiah 66, which says that when we go to heaven, the Sabbath will still be observed throughout eternity. So my question is, when is Sabbath reactivated? If Sabbath was discontinued, when is Sabbath reactivated to be observed once again as a holy day unto the Lord, a day of worship? It has never changed, you see. We're trying to endorse the paganism that has trickled into the Christian church, and we better be careful when we do that, because if we do not know what we're basing our, our, our conviction upon... And if, it's not, if our conviction is not based on the Word of God, we can be making the same mistakes that Ezekiel saw his people make during his time and what John the Revelator saw people making mistakes during his time. Spiritual Babylon, the teachings of Babylon, would slip into the large mother church. Protestant churches would leave the large mother church. And we talked about this last night, where God would raise up great, courageous men throughout history. But unfortunately, although they brought in a piece of that truth that was so needed for their time, they would retain errors from the mother church like the immortality of the soul. They would retain errors from the mother church, like Sunday worship. Some, somebody says again, are all those people lost? We talked about that last night. No, they're not. By grace, we are saved through Christ. Many of them love Jesus. But friends, we are living in the last days. Truth is truth and must be followed. 
God is unfolding the prophecies of revelation to Baptists, to Catholics, to Methodists, to Episcopalians, to Pentecostals, those who love Jesus, those who love the truth. And as they're learning new things from God's word, as they're learning those new things, they say, this is truth. This is something my heart responds to. This is truth. These things are what I always wondered about. These are things that have always, that has always troubled my mind. This is the time to move for God. In the days of Ezekiel, when error slipped in among God's people, Ezekiel cried out. He cried out that their people would turn back to the living God. And friends, question number 10 says, what serious warning does God give to pastors and religious leaders of today? This is a very sobering thing for us to take heed to. You know, many people, God bless them, that I've met with as I knock on doors to see if they're interested in learning more about the Bible. I meet many people in many different religious persuasions. And as I knock on their doors and I ask them, like, would you be interested in studying the Bible? Some topics will come up and they'll ask, oh, you know, what, what, what do you believe? And, and I would ask them that. And, and when I ask them some certain questions, they would say, oh, uh, well, um, let me, you should ask my pastor. <laughs> my pastor knows the answer, so you should come and ask him. They cannot answer for themselves. Now, I'm not saying that all of them are like that, but predominantly many people are dependent on the pastor to dictate what they believe. And when we allow the pastor, what if our pastor's wrong? You're going to be held accountable for that. Right? So we, especially in these days, in the last days, brothers and sisters, we need to be people of the book. We need to study the Bible for ourselves. We need to be able to answer the questions for ourselves and give a ready answer for the faith that was passed to us and what we believe. Not saying, oh, well, uh, talk to my pastor. In the last days, when people are bringing you before courts of law and they ask you, why are you a Christian? And your pastor's in jail. What are you going to say? Oh, well, my pastor, he's in jail. Can you get him? Can you call him up? Can I get a lifeline? That's not going to happen. But look at this. We, 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 we need to recognize truth despite who's telling it. We need to verify for ourselves, be faithful Bereans to verify what they say is true. But notice the stark warning. Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 26. I think it is very important that we turn to this text. Page 823. Page 823, Ezekiel 22, 26. Are we there? Well, that's good. <laughs> Ezekiel 22, verse 26, page 823. And I believe we're on table two. Is that right? Yes. 
All right. Who in table two can read this for us? It's a very important text. Nice and loud, please. Wow. You know, if Ezekiel was alive today, I believe that he would cry out today saying that to many religious leaders today have hidden their eyes from God's truth. The Apostle John would cry out today to flee from the errors that have become part of a fallen church system in Babylon. We see that Ezekiel tells us that the priests have violated my law, right? Those who are religious leaders, they have, taught, they have not given a clear distinction between what is clean and unclean, what is holy and unholy, and they have profaned his holy things, and also it specifically mentions my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. God is leading us, friends, back to his word. God is leading us back to his truth. God is leading honest-hearted men and women by the thousands. There would be a power that Daniel speaks of that is in existence in these last days and has been at work from the early onset of Christianity. And Daniel 7 verse 25 says that this, this power, this entity, will seek to change times and laws. And I really love what the Protestant writer George Eliot said in his book, The Abiding Sabbath, page 1, 2, 3. He was commenting on Daniel 7 and man's attempt to change God's law. Excuse me. And this is what he says. What is purposed? To make an erasure in the heaven-born code. What's the heaven-born heaven code? The Ten Commandments. Is the eternal tablet of the law to be defaced by a creature's hand? I think that's a good question. Don't you think so? Is the eternal tablet of God's law that says that thou shall not make any graven image, is that to be defaced by man's hand? Is the eternal tablet of God's law that says, remember the Sabbath, to be defaced by the creature's hand? Eliot goes on. He who proposes such an act should fortify himself by reasons as holy as God and as mighty as his power. You should tremble when you think about that, what he's saying. To have the audacity to say something in opposition to God's clear word and God's clear law. That's, you're treading on very dangerous ground when you do that. And ladies and gentlemen, I want to say to you that no earthly church, I don't care which power or church or denomination it is, has the authority to change God's law or change God's word. No one. You can say whatever you want, but I don't believe that. I don't buy that for a moment. The Word of God has always been, the law of God has always been, and always will be. It'll never be changed. 
And I say to you that preachers should get back to preaching from the Bible, God's word, God's truth, and flee the harlots of Revelation 17. I believe that God is calling us back today to preach God's word. I believe that God is calling us today to truth. I believe that God, through Jesus Christ, is calling us to truth. Our Lord is gathering a group of people who believe Christ is in their lives. A group of people who believe that you can come directly to Jesus and you don't have to go through images. A group of people who longs for Christ who came once to come again the second time and take us home. They cannot accept the unbiblical ideal of the immortal soul. Christ's bride will worship him as the creator of heaven and earth. The bride of Christ calls his people back to the true Sabbath. The woman in scarlet and purple, the woman who is riding the scarlet-covered beast, is passed around her wine cup, and the world is drunk with false doctrines today. And churches have accepted these doctrines. But God is giving a call. God says in Revelation chapter 18, verse 4, Come out of her, my people. He has a people in Babylon. He has a people that are steeped in this system that was, that was influenced by false doctrines. A false system, a hybrid of Christianity and paganism combined. And God is saying, come out of her, my people, lest you be partakers of her sins and be partakers of her plagues. We see in Revelation chapter 18, verse 4, the fallen church systems have drifted from God's word. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. Where are many of God's people today? In churches that don't understand these truths. These truths that are clearly emerging from God's word. Most of God's people today, loving Christians of every religious persuasion, are in churches that God calls Babylon. So what does God say to his people? He says, come out of her, lest you share in her sins, lest you receive of her plagues. Friends, what is sin? The Bible tells us, 1 John 3, 4, sin is a transgression of the law. It's the breaking of God's law. So God says, my people, I love you. My people, you've been drinking the wine of Babylon. My people, you are confused by the wine of Babylon. But my people, God's truth can sober you up. God's truth can convict your hearts. Look at this commentary by Jameson, Faust, and Brown. It says, In every apostate or world-conforming church, there are some of God's 
invisible and true church who, if they would be safe, must come out. God has a people in every denomination. But he's calling them to be part of one fold under one shepherd, under one truth in these last days. Before Jesus comes, it's not going to be several groups, but one. And friends, God is calling us to be part of that one group. He's calling you to be part of that one group. Tonight, can you hear him say, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins. With tones of mercy, with tones of love, Jesus has come out of her, my people. You say, I've been looking for the truth. I'm a truth seeker. I haven't been satisfied. Something within me longs for truth. Or maybe you're thinking, I once walked with God's people, but I've drifted away. I've never been happy since. And there's this big emptiness inside. I've been longing for something more. Something of substance. Something I can hold on to. And praise the Lord that God has brought you to these series. I believe that God has brought you here. I honestly do, with all my heart. Nothing happens by accident. I believe that God is looking down upon you, brothers and sisters, tonight. God is looking down upon you. Maybe you're a husband, maybe you're a wife, maybe you're alone. Maybe you're the only one in your family. God is calling you. God has brought you here. In tones of tenderness and love, Jesus is saying to you, come out of her, my people. Will you respond to that call? Or will you sit back and say, no, not now. I don't quite buy this all yet. I'd like to appeal to you tonight that we strive to know the truth. And if you've learned any shred of truth during this series, that's good. Praise God. The Word of God has spoken. But I want to encourage you to not just know the truth, but whatever truth that you did glean from this series, live it in your life. Live it in your life. If it's truly the Word of God that has brought things to light, live it in your life. Do not go back to the way things were. Live according to every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
is because many people are not reading the Word, that they have not known these truths. But you know them. You've learned them during the times we've been meeting. There are some truths that have burned within your heart, and I know that you have been excited to see the clear revelation from God's Word. But live by it. Live by every word of God. Would you like to make a decision tonight to say, Lord, I've sensed that you've brought me here during these meetings. I felt the tugging in my heart. I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me. And I want to commit myself to you all the way. All the way. Are you willing to make that decision tonight? If so, would you raise your hand? Praise the Lord. Praise God. There's nothing more important than the truth. Embrace the truth and live it. Let me pray with you. Gracious Heavenly Father, Jesus our Lord said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father except through me. And Lord, we do want to follow Jesus, for He is the truth. He has spoken to us through the pages of Revelation and throughout His Word. Lord, we know and we hear your call. And Lord, we want to respond to that call. We want to follow you all the way. Lord, please be with each and every hand raised here tonight. I pray that you please have your hand over them. I pray that your spirit will be with them. I pray that as they follow and embrace and integrate their, your truth into their lives, that you will give them that sanctifying power and influence in their life so that they will continue to follow truth after truth to the brighter day. Bless them, Lord, I pray. Till we meet again, watch over them, protect them, and continue to make the Word of God living and powerful in their lives. We thank you for hearing this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.